0: More than 22,000 people are now confirmed dead in Turkey and Syria from this week's earthquake, but crews are still pulling survivors from the rubble. It's Friday, February 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, Turkish-American communities are rushing to supply earthquake relief efforts. Also this hour, Congress is asking the White House for more details on what it knew about the Chinese spy balloon and when. The Pentagon sees the balloon as a step toward China increasing its strength.
1: The PRC is, quote, combining its economic, diplomatic, military and technological might as it pursues a sphere of influence in the Indo-Pacific and seeks to become the world's most influential power.
0: And why some companies are holding on to more staff than they need, and how that's affecting the U.S. job market. Clouds will give way to sun, and it'll be breezy and warm today near 60. It's 7.01. Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. The death toll has climbed past 20,000 people in Turkey and Syria from this week's gargantuan earthquake and hundreds of aftershocks. Rescuers are still working to free people from crushing debris thousands of buildings collapsed. Didem Demirikan is with the relief group Oxfam in Turkey. She says the scale of the earthquake's devastation is staggering.
3: It had 10 provinces, so it's a big geography. And 13 million people were impacted. So, you know, it's a big population. So, first of all, the needs are too much and add to that the cold
2: temperatures have dropped below freezing in the region adding to the misery of survivors many people are sleeping outdoors because remaining buildings are unsafe or because there's no housing at all there are fresh air raid alerts in ukraine today russia has fired dozens of missiles and drones into ukraine and the targets are power substations and other infrastructure Ukraine and Western nations say Russia is using winter as a weapon of war by cutting off electricity and throwing civilians into the cold. Britain's defense minister says the U.K. will not transfer fighter jets to Ukraine in the near term. Villa Marx reports that's despite pleas from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky.
1: British Defense Minister Ben Wallace said it could take months to supply aircraft to participate in the conflict. In the meantime, the UK would be focused on other technology and weapon systems to defend Ukrainian skies from Russian jets, including long-range missiles and drones. Wallace echoed military analysts as he told the conference in Rome it would be, quote, more realistic and more productive if Britain planned to provide military aircraft to Ukraine after the current conflict had concluded to ensure the country's long-term security. During Zelensky's recent visit to Britain, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak promised UK training for Ukrainian fighter pilots on aircraft types that are used by NATO members. For NPR News, I'm Billum Marks in London.
4: The
2: federal government has sent a letter to the nation's governors. The letter formally tells them that the COVID-19 public health emergency in the U.S. will end on May 11th. NPR Selena Simmons-Duffin reports.
5: Health Secretary Javier Becerra's letter informs governors that the public health emergency declaration is being extended one last time for 90 days. It notes that this decision was being made in light of promising pandemic trend lines since the peak of the COVID-19 Omicron surge in January 2022. Daily reported cases are down 92 percent and deaths and hospitalizations have declined by about 80 percent. In a call with reporters, federal health officials noted that access to vaccines and certain treatments like Paxlovid will not be affected right away. The federal government has purchased enough of these to last until late summer or early fall, so they'll still be free to everyone, regardless of insurance, until that supply runs out. Selena Simmons
6: duffin NPR News.
0: You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupesh Chanoi. Red Line trains are running once again at the Alewife T Station. The Red Line stop is back open for the first time since a car crash in the station garage last weekend. The main lobby will stay closed for repairs. Riders will enter the station through the Russell Field entrance. The driver of the car could be facing charges. T officials say the crash was intentional. Transit officials are still trying to fill some key jobs at the T. The transit agency is looking for dispatchers so it can restore full service to the red, orange, and blue lines. The MBTA is also trying to hire more bus and train drivers. Despite the vacancies, the MBTA says so far it's hired more people than it did last year. The federal emergency declaration that provides free COVID vaccines expires in May, but Bostonians will be able to get free shots until the end of the year. Boston's Commissioner for Public Health says the city has enough funds to cover the costs. Dr. Basola Ojikutu says the city will also keep providing free COVID tests.
7: Individuals can walk into any
8: of these five standing sites and get a rapid test kit so they don't have to go through their insurance. They can just pick it up themselves. What we'd like to do is continue to make that available
9: for people for as long as possible.
0: Ojikutu says the city will decide in a few months if it will be able to extend free vaccines and COVID tests into next year. The school superintendent in Wayland has been placed on leave. The school committee has not said why. It says the district's assistant superintendent will take over the role until further notice. Omar Easy became the first black person chosen by the town to be superintendent in 2021. He was the target of racist graffiti found near Wayland High School last December. It's 7.05.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MetroWest Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick.
0: The Celtics are at home tonight to play the Charlotte Hornets. And in your forecast, mostly cloudy this morning with sun by the afternoon. It'll be windy at times, but we'll have near record warmth today with a high near 60. Partly cloudy tonight with temperatures in the 30s, sunny tomorrow and in the lower 40s. Sunny again on Sunday and in the low 50s. Right now it's 48 degrees in Boston at 706.
11: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sony Pictures Classics, presenting Living, a new film directed by Oliver Hermanis, starring Bill Nye as a man who tries to turn his ordinary life into something wonderful, now playing Select Cities.
6: Hi, I'm Chloe Axelson, and I'm the senior editor of WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. I recently bought two copies of the picture book, Will It Be Okay?, One for my kids, and one for the children of a dear friend. The book, by Crescent Dragon Wagon, was first published in 1977. The entirety of the story is a little girl asking her mom questions. What if there's thunder and lightning? What if I forget my lines in the school play? And finally, the big one, what if you die? The mom has a sensible, heartfelt approach for every conundrum, even the last one. Yes, my love, it will. It will be okay, she says. As ever, we're looking for stories that take on the big questions, for essays that seek hope and offer perspective and understanding. You can help us do that work by supporting WBUR. Send someone you love Winston flowers. Let that be your way to offer love and comfort. Visit WBUR.org to get started.
0: Right now, you're listening to WBUR's Morning Edition, as you probably do every day. So you should know that you can send flowers to your Valentine and support WBUR at the same time. And when you put in your order by noon tomorrow, your Valentine will get their Winston flowers the day before Valentine's Day. So they'll have more time to enjoy your thoughtful gift. See all the options at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Again, WBUR.org org or call
12: 1-800-909-9287. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California.
5: And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. We have new information about the Chinese spy balloon shot down off the coast of South Carolina earlier this week.
12: The U.S. Navy and FBI are working to recover what remains of the balloon. Meanwhile, members of Congress want to know what data it collected while hovering over the U.S.
5: NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas joins us now to discuss this. Hi, Ryan. Good morning. Good morning. So what's the latest that the Biden administration is saying about this balloon?
1: Well, the, the administration has been pushing out more and more information in the past several days on yeah. this. Uh, the U.S. said yesterday, for example, that these sorts of Chinese spy balloons have flown over 40 countries on five continents. Uh, an American U-2 spy plane did a flyby of the most recent balloon here. Uh, and images that it picked up showed that this balloon could collect signals intelligence. So in other words, it could spy on American communications. Uh, and the U.S. is saying quite plainly that the equipment on the balloon was not consistent with weather balloons. And that, of course, is pushing back on China's claim that this was just a weather balloon that had veered off course.
13: So
5: how are lawmakers responding to that?
1: Members of both parties want the administration to detail what kind of data the Chinese were able to collect. Lawmakers did receive a briefing on Capitol Hill yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the House unanimously approved a resolution condemning China's use of the balloon over the US. Uh, here's the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Mike McCall.
14: It is publicly challenging US interest, threatening Taiwan, supporting Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine and now violating U.S. sovereignty.
1: So that gives you a good sense, a good taste of how members of Congress uh, are viewing China's actions.
14: Yeah.
5: So the U.S. is also saying China has a fleet of these for surveillance purposes, right?
1: That's right. That's what the U.S. is saying, uh, that China's developed a fleet of these for spying purposes and that it's often uh, the Chinese military that's calling the shots on how they're used. Uh, State Department officials said that the U.S. has identified the company that makes these balloons. And the U.S. says it's a company that has ties to the Chinese military. Hmm. Uh, And look, the U.S. has said at least four other such Chinese balloons have flown over parts of the U.S. in recent years. But the U.S. didn't detect those incursions in real time. They didn't detect them as they happened. They only did so later.
5: What do we know about the this effort off the coast of South Carolina to recover what's left of the balloon?
1: So bits and pieces of this balloon fell into the Atlantic Ocean about six miles off the South Carolina coast. Uh, The U.S. Navy and Coast Guard are obviously working to collect uh, the fragments of this thing, but the FBI is playing a role as well. Two senior FBI officials familiar with the operation spoke to reporters yesterday. They said the U.S. has only collected materials that were on the the ocean surface so far. So the balloon canopy, uh, some wiring, what one official described as a very small amount of electronics. The first bits of evidence that were recovered uh, were transported to FBI facilities at Quantico late Monday evening, and those are being cleaned uh, and analyzed.
5: Okay, to be clear, the U.S. hasn't recovered most of the surveillance equipment that the balloon was carrying.
1: That's right. That's right. Uh, The FBI officials say that most of the debris is still underwater, still on the ocean floor. Uh, That includes the bulk of the electronic equipment, the the high-tech surveillance devices and so on that are, of course, of so much interest to the U.S. Mm -hmm. here. Uh, One of the FBI officials said that this sort of recovery operation takes some time, uh, as will the analysis of what they eventually find. Uh, And it takes time to get folks to the scene, to identify uh, debris that's underwater, to get that debris to the surface and back to land, and to get it ultimately to Quantico uh, for the FBI techs to take a look at.
5: NPR's Ryan Lucas. Thanks, Ryan.
1: Thank you.
12: All right, next we talk about one of the the moments of this week's State of the Union Address, where President Biden claims some Republicans want to sunset Social Security and Medicare. Medicare is a federal health program for people ages 65 and older, as well as younger people with long-term disabilities. The program accounts for 10 percent of the federal budget. Some members of the GOP have openly called for funding cuts or changes, which they cannot do without Democratic support. But the political debate raises questions about the future of the government-funded programs, such as Medicare. I'm joined now by Shakita Brooks-Lashore, Administrator of the Federal Office that runs the program. That's the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. All right, now more than 60 million Americans are enrolled in Medicare. If there were any changes, Shakita, to the program, who among them would be affected the most?
15: Well, as you mentioned and as we heard today, uh, earlier this week, the president is just committed to making sure that we support Medicare and the health care programs. There are over 60 five million people who are covered by Medicare. And these are our parents, our grandparents, our loved ones, and their young people, people who have had a disability in their life that have caused them to be dependent on the Medicare program. And the president has really worked hard over the last year uh, working with Congress to pass legislation to make Medicare programs stronger than ever. And as you can hear, he wants to continue to make sure that there is support for the program um, and that we continue to make it sustainable for future generations.
12: So on that sustainability, because uh, Medicare spending is expected to more than double from the 829 billion it was in 2021 to 1.8 trillion in 2031. So given what that definitely seems and looks like a massive cost increase, how would you describe the program's long-term viability?
15: I would say that this is something, Medicare spending, that we always have to look at. Every couple of years, it's important for Congress to continue to make adjustments. And we made, as I mentioned, some real down payments on improving the program last year. The most important of that would be the Inflation Reduction Act, or as I like to call it, the new prescription drug law, because it had really important protections, not only for the people who depend on the program, but also for the program sustainable, sustainability itself. So, changes to make sure that we hold companies responsible if they increase their prices above inflation on prescription drugs, which helps the Medicare program. And we saw uh, some changes at the end of the year to the program that really help make sure it's sustainable, like including mental health. Services uh, and the president will continue to put out more information as he releases his president's budget.
12: But, but Chiquita, um, let me let me ask you this really quick in the time we have left: Is it possible to streamline the spending without streamlining streamlining the services?
15: There are changes that are important and necessary, so um, that that don't lead to a uh, uh, increase or decrease in services. So we are absolutely looking at ways to make sure that we are paying appropriately, we've put out a number of uh, administrative proposals to make sure that people are getting the care that they need and that's been a real priority of making sure that the dollars are spent wisely, but we do need to continue to make changes that don't necessarily that don't cut benefits, but there are changes that will cut benefits and that's why the president was so emphatic about saying We have to protect the program and not put in um, arbitrary rules about Mm -hmm. how Medicare spending will operate so that it doesn't end up hurting the people that depend uh, depend on it every day.
12: So you've got about a minute left here. I want to try and squeeze in Medicaid because enrollment spiked Mm -hmm. in the pandemic and the Biden administration is ending the COVID-19 public health emergency May 11th. A lot of low income people could lose their coverage. What is your agency doing
4: about that?
15: We have been so thrilled to see the enrollment in Medicaid CHIP and Affordable Care Act or the um, Obamacare rise to record levels, and we are working very hard with states as people transition and maybe if their incomes have increased that we make sure that they get coverage through either the Affordable Care Act coverage or get to employer-sponsored insurance. One of the key roles is making sure that states can find people uh, and if they've moved or things have changed. So one of the things we just encourage everybody who is on Medicaid is to make sure they're looking at the information that their states are sending to them about updating their information. And that's one of our top
12: priorities this year. Shakita Brooks-LaSure is the Administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you.
5: This Sunday marks the 57th Super Bowl, and groundskeeper George Toma has tended to all of them—yes, all 57. Toma is 94 years old, and he's been in Glendale, Arizona, for almost two weeks, working with the NFL to get the fields ready for the big game and the halftime show. Here's reporter Greg Ecklin.
16: While security at the game has ramped up with helicopters above and perimeter fencing around the stadium, on the playing surface, the final touches are being applied. This Super Bowl matchup between the Philadelphia Eagles and Kansas City Chiefs is special to lifelong groundskeeper George Toma. He grew up in Pennsylvania. I always rooted for the Eagles when I was nine, ten years old. My uncle would take me down to Shy Park to see the Phillies play and the Eagles play. But Toma, known as the Sod Father and the God of Sod, has spent most of his adult life in Kansas City. When the Chiefs began playing there in 1963, he took over as the groundskeeper for the team. And for the past 56 Super Bowls, the NFL has tapped him to help make the sod sparkle for football's most important game. Thomas says it's become a really big deal now. And in those first 27 Super Bowls,
17: we didn't spend $1,000 on the field for a game. And this one here is $750,000.
16: Toma says he keeps coming back to the Super Bowl because of the work ethic instilled in him while growing up in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. At age 16, he was the head groundskeeper of the town's minor league baseball team. Today, at 94, Toma is at the Super Bowl with his son Ryan, who was there to lend a helping hand. Ryan says his dad tries his best to be nonpartisan, but even the grounds crew leaned one way or the other. We're getting ready to paint the Eagles end zone, and the Eagles guys uh, made the Kansas City guys stand just outside of it. So, yeah, couldn't go in. They wouldn't allow us in there. And when the Chiefs colors were painted on their side of the end zone, turnabout became fair play. Get out of here, guys. This is ours. This is our turf. George Thomas says while much of the attention will be on the game, he's more concerned about the halftime show, which will feature hundreds of performers including pop star Rihanna, trampling the field that he cares so much about.
7: I hate to say this, but the halftime shore is more important than the game.
16: But not a task that the sodfather father can't handle. For NPR News, I'm Greg Eklund in Glendale, Arizona. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Coming up, we hear about a new project that uses music to explore policing, incarceration, and structural violence. It's 720. And your forecast, sunny today with a high near 61. It'll also be windy tonight, mostly clear skies and a low around freezing, still windy. Tomorrow, sunny and windy again, cooler with a high near 41. Mostly sunny on Sunday with a high near 51. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com.
18: Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that make your world bigger. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order by noon tomorrow for Monday delivery of any of our four choices, including
0: two dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org. You need to choose your gift by noon tomorrow for Winston flowers to deliver to your loved one by the day before Valentine's Day. And sending the flowers the day before is that extra special step that shows your Valentine how thoughtful you are. You want them to get flowers the day before so they can be enjoyed all valentine's day and when you send your valentine winston flowers from wbur you will help wbur and npr bring you more of the deep nuanced reporting you count on so choose the perfect gift for your valentine at wbur.org or call 1-800-909-9287 there are four options to choose from send a dozen long stem road Red Roses with a contribution of $150. Two Dozen is a contribution of $250. Then there's the Ultimate Romance Arrangement, which is roses set off against this explosion of other colorful flowers. That's a contribution of $500. Or the final option, the Flower of the Month subscription. With any of those choices, you'll be strengthening journalism for all of us. WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world, and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm
12: Layla Falden. Anime Martinez, the multidisciplinary musician Samora Pinderhughes has just been awarded a rare million-dollar grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. The money will fund his project that will explore policing, incarceration, and structural violence. NPR culture correspondent Anastasios Yulkas recently sat down with him.
19: Samora Pinderhughes does many things. He's a vocalist, pianist, composer, and filmmaker. He's also very much an activist against mass incarceration. For the past eight years, he's been working on something called the Healing Project. It's about healing and leaving yourself emotionally open to your own feelings, to the experiences of others, to generosity. Cry. The healing project is made up of many elements, including music, films, and visual art. It's meant to be performed and experienced in many different ways and in different places. Pinder Hughes, who is of mixed race and black ancestry, says there's one central question at its core.
20: And that ended up being the question of healing from structural violence. And by structural violence, I mean just basically any type of trauma that could come from violences that are created by the society. So that could be imprisonment, that could be police brutality. It could even just be something like poverty and just like the circumstances of one's upbringing and environment. And so it brought me on a journey of talking to hundreds of people around the country about their experiences and their ideas, most importantly, about healing and what they've been through, how they've come through it.
19: Those hundreds of conversations included people who are currently incarcerated. Many of them contributed their own art to the project. And Pinder Hughes worked with a constellation of professional artists and musicians to make meditations on those conversations.
20: I didn't really want to limit it. And so I basically did everything that each person asked me to do. So if they wanted to send me pieces that they had drawn through the mail if they were incarcerated, those go up in the exhibition. If they wanted to talk about the realities and experiences of loss and grieving, we would make a film about that. If they wanted to talk about the process of healing from long periods of incarceration, we're going to make a composition about that.
19: A composition like this one from the album Grief, which is one of the components of the healing projects.
20: Death is much worse for the ones left behind Don't leave me alone with my dreams
19: Other parts of the project include live performances and a visual art exhibition on display last year at San Francisco's Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. The expansiveness of the healing project, part creative vessel, part catalyst for activism, and part new collaborative model is so dynamic that it attracted the attention of the Mellon Foundation. Emil Kang directs its arts and culture program. He was blown away by Hughes's vision.
21: I started asking him about his own artistic practice, and he started to, in
1: some ways, bifurcate his work to talk about his music over here, his lived experience over here and his commitment to justice for abolition work over there and how he longed for the day of time when he could actually bring all of this together.
19: It's extremely rare for a single performer to get a million dollars from a grant. That's about the same as a Nobel Prize winner. And that sum is going to allow the healing project to be manifested into even more forms. For example, Pender Hughes plans to make a book version of the healing project because so many participants are incarcerated. They're not able to access the collaboration otherwise.
20: We're going to continue to do that art and that narrative work. We're going to make the book. We're going to make more albums. We're going to make more exhibitions. We're going to make more films.
19: Eventually, he wants to fulfill more basic needs, too, as basic as helping people get food and jobs. Young man, come down from that
20: tower. It isn't yet your time.
19: I'll tell you five years later, you made it out of. That's Pinder Hughes singing. In the meantime, he hopes that the music of the healing project and the power of the art helps both creators and audiences chart their own paths to healing. He recalls a man coming up to him after a recent performance.
20: And he was like, I feel like you should make a shirt that says, I make grown men cry. <laughs> and I was like, that's not a bad idea. So now I just kind of jokingly I'm like, okay, that's the tagline of what the energy is.
19: Tonight, Samora Pinderhughes and some of his musical collaborators will be performing a concert version of the Healing Project at New York's Zancal Hall. Almost inevitably, people will cry. And that's a big part of healing. Anastasia Tsilkas, NPR News, New York.
12: La Huarachera de Cuba and the Queen of Salsa is making history nearly 20 years after her death. Celia Cruz will soon be honored as the first Afro-Latina to appear on the U.S. quarter.
5: The Cuban-American singer left a music legacy that included numerous Grammy Awards, a National Medal of Arts, and 23 gold albums.
4: Her
17: performance was just was, was untouchable.
12: That's all latinos Felix Contreras. He says Cruz's career transcended music. Cruz's former manager, Omer Bardillo
21: Sid, agrees. The only thing that was better than the singer that everybody knew, it was the persona behind Celia Cruz.
5: But this recognition is special.
21: Being a first Afro-Latina to obtain this honor, I think it's amazing because Celia was a trailblazer.
5: Ariana Curtis is the curator for Latinx studies at the National Museum of African American History and
20: Culture. She was an unapologetic Black woman, and you can see that in her style. You can hear that in her songs, from Kimbara to La Negra Tiene Tumbao.
12: Pardillo Cid says Cruz was proud of being an Afro-Latina.
21: That is a new generation that obviously are identifying with Celia's culture, music, and and they feel proud of her. The U.S. Mint says the new quarter will be out in (music)
12: mid-2023. This is NPR
11: News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration, with technology as your guide. Tickets at MOS.org.
22: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Efforts continue in southeastern Turkey and northern Syria to find survivors of Monday's powerful earthquake. The death toll now tops 20,000. Search and rescue teams are still looking for additional survivors in the rubble of collapsed buildings as international aid continues to arrive in the region. One major obstacle is the lack of heavy equipment to move debris. Kieran Barnes is with the international aid group Mercy Corps. He says conditions in Syria are very difficult.
23: Lots of people sleeping in cars, people standing next to rubble and hearing their family members stuck inside, but there's nothing they can do for them. They don't have the same level of uh, heavy machinery or expertise. So that's been extremely difficult. And then On top of that, it's the winter. So it's freezing conditions, um, snowing, people are homeless. um, The heating supplies are not good enough and not the quality, people are burning rubbish. Barnes was speaking
22: to NPR's Morning Edition. Lawmakers in the House are condemning the Chinese government for sending a surveillance balloon over the U.S., a non-binding resolution passed unanimously in the House yesterday. The U.S. military shot down the balloon off the coast of South Carolina a week after it entered U.S. airspace. The FBI has begun analyzing some of what's been recovered in the Atlantic. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Adult learners in Massachusetts who want to earn their high school credentials can now access testing for free. The state will pay. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, each test can cost up to $140.
24: Officials with the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education say the goal is to remove barriers for adults working toward a high school diploma. Cliff Chuang is the state's Senior Associate Commissioner for Educational Options. He says the high school credential requires a battery of tests, and costs can add up for students.
25: You can imagine where
4: there are some folks who forego the test for other basic needs, and this really is going to help remove that barrier and ensure that that is not the reason why someone is not getting that credential. And it's consistent with the fact that our programs are free.
24: The move will cost the state about $800,000 per year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young.
0: President Biden's top energy official will be in Massachusetts today. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm plans to celebrate the opening of Commonwealth Fusion Systems' new research center in Devon's. Researchers there are working to build the first device that can create fusion energy on a commercial level. Fusion, fusion energy is a way of generating more energy than was used to create it. That means it would be cheaper and cleaner than other energy sources. The truck driver who was cleared of causing the deaths of seven motorcyclists in New Hampshire is now facing deportation. Vladimir Zakovsky is originally from Ukraine. U.S. Customs officials detained him after the crash. His lawyers say he has permanent residency status. With the war, it's unclear if or when he would be deported. It's 7.33.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by One Fine Morning from Sony Pictures Classics. Lea Seydoux stars as a widow who juggles her young daughter, her sick father, and an affair with a married friend. Now playing select cities.
0: The Celtics and Charlotte Hornets played a night at the Garden. The Seas traded yesterday for center forward Mike Mescala. He comes to Boston from Oklahoma City. In exchange, the Celtics sent Justin Jackson to the Thunder, along with two future second-round draft picks. Clear skies and windy today with temperatures rising to the low 60s. Tonight still windy and skies stay clear as it falls to the low 30s. Back to the low 40s on Saturday, but it'll be sunny, and it'll stay sunny on Sunday. We'll have temperatures in the low 50s. Right now, it's 50 degrees in Boston at 734.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
5: And I'm Leila Fulton in Washington, D.C. In a sign of the changing state of the pandemic, NPR has learned that an indispensable source of information about the virus over the last three years is shutting down. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein reports on the end of the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center.
7: When the pandemic erupted, no one knew much of anything. Was it safe to go grocery shopping, take a bus or train to work, even jog past someone in the park?
6: As everyone can remember, there was very limited information, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic.
7: Beth Blauer is an associate vice provost at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore.
6: And when we started to see the cases move out of China and in through Europe and headed towards our shores, we knew that there were going to be a series of public policy decisions that would have to be made.
7: Like should mayors close schools, governors mandate masks, CEOs shut down factories, presidents seal borders? But there was no good data available to make those decisions. Neither the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention nor the World Health Organization were providing enough useful numbers in real time. So journalists and academic researchers at places like Johns Hopkins jumped in to fill the void. Dr. Ali Khan is a former CDC official who is now at the University of Nebraska. I know CDC has the ability to do this and has done it numerous occasions in the past. So it was unusual that at the beginning of this COVID pandemic that they did not collect this data and put it out in a timely manner. Extremely unusual and very surprising. So Johns Hopkins launched the project, which quickly became crucial for deciding everything from where drug companies should test vaccines to where Hollywood should film movies. Even the White House and the British Prime Minister were relying on the Hopkins data. Lauren Gardner, who conceived the project with one of her students, says the website was used by everyone from policymakers to everyday people.
24: I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people that were just out and about doing their job traveling in Japan here and there would tell me that the dashboard was the driving force in decision-making for them in terms of quitting their job and then coming home so that they wouldn't get stuck.
7: The site's maps of the world in individual countries became an iconic way of tracking the virus's inexorable spread. Dr. Celine Gounder from the Kaiser Family Foundation was working as an infectious disease specialist at Bellevue Hospital in New York at the time.
3: I would refresh
2: my computer screen over and over again over the course of the workday. looking to see what the latest numbers were, and it was really startling to see even over the course of the day day, how the numbers were evolving. I think my colleagues thought I was a little obsessive, but it was also watching history unfold
24: in real time on your screen.
7: The site eventually drew more than 2.5 billion views. But the pandemic threat has started to recede. States are reporting numbers far less frequently. And Lauren Gardner says the CDC has finally ramped up.
24: Now the CDC is in a position to be providing the data that's needed to understand the pandemic. And therefore, there's less of a need for us to also be doing that. It's an appropriate time to move on.
7: So after three years, the $13 million Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center will shut down March 10th. But they could start something again, if necessary, for the next pandemic. Rob Stein, in PR News.
12: The powerful earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria on Monday has impacted communities around the world. The city of Patterson, New Jersey, is home to the largest community of Turkish immigrants in the United States. It also has a strong Syrian presence. Many residents have lost loved ones and are missing family members. NPR's Jasmine Guards reports.
24: When Nikola Dogum first heard the news, he thought it has to be a mistake. People were saying a 7.8 earthquake had hit South Turkey, where he's from, and Syria. Then the phone rang. It was his brother-in-law.
26: He's calling us, what's up? And he's under building.
24: He said he was buried under seven collapsed floors.
26: He tell us, please tell my brother to come help me, please.
24: But Nicola Dogun was over 5,000 miles away in Patterson, New Jersey, where he says he felt helpless and terrified. That's how a lot of folks here feel right now. Patterson has been quiet uh, for the last three, four days. Darya Tashkin's family owns a Turkish bakery. She says the vibrant community of Patterson has spent the last week seesawing between hope and despair. You know, one moment you get happy because five-year-old girl was safe, so everyone cheers up. And then you see other things that's been uh, pulled out from the rubble and everyone starts crying. She's especially worried about anyone under the rubble who might still be alive. Patterson Mayor Andre Seya, who is himself Syrian-American, says as soon as he heard the news, he immediately jumped into action.
1: I called the Turkish ambassador and I called the consul general from Turkey and they both echoed the same sentiment. We need search and rescue help. President
24: Biden recently pledged to aid rescue efforts. Seyev says the community is also coming together to send essential goods.
1: We are starting to develop different pipelines to get clothing or whatever it may be there to Turkey. It's cold in Turkey, so they're getting clothing for children, clothing for adults.
24: A local barber shop called Palestinian Hair is one of the points of organization.
27: Oh my God, Sammy.
24: Barbara Raid Oday is the deputy mayor. He says they've been working with local mosques and community organizations. They're also in talks with local merchants and shipping companies to get clothes and baby formula out there as quickly as possible.
27: Yesterday we were uh, at one of those warehouses where they ship trying to figure out how we can do all these uh, runs and Try to get things over there as soon as
24: possible. But some in Patterson worry it won't be enough. Nicola Dagum says he's concerned about Syria, where part of his family is from. Syria has already been through years of conflict and aid may move in slower due to sanctions. Dagum says he's not waiting for that aid to arrive for his mother and sister, who are now homeless in the middle of winter.
26: My sister over there, my mom over there. My mom, she's OK. My sister, OK. They, they was sleep in the car. They can't go inside. No, 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 no house. No more. No more.
24: He's told his mom and sister he'd like to bring them to the U.S. He says he himself can't go back. Not right now. It hurts too much. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, Patterson, New Jersey.
12: This is NPR News.
0: Coming up next on Morning Edition, we explain what so-called labor hoarding is and why it's a problem. And in our next hour, COVID experts share the latest information on whether or not to mask and in what situations. In your forecast, we may come close to breaking some records today for warm temperatures. It'll be in the low 60s under clear skies. There will also be some gusty winds. Low 30s tonight and still windy. Saturday, sunny and back to the low 40s. Sunday, sunny and low 50s. Right now, it's 51 degrees in Boston at 743.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious
21: diseases. Career Opportunities at vrtx.com. It's Ben Brock Johnson, executive producer of podcasts at WBUR. My mother turns 80 years old this month. She is many things, a poet, an activist, an extremely creative cook who made pink bread with my daughter a few weeks ago. Among her tireless edits, her experiments in the kitchen, good and not so good, her efforts to raise awareness about our climate... My mom somehow raised me and my older brother. This Valentine's Day, I'm thinking about what Herculean feats decades of love can do. I'm so thankful for what my mom has given me and the world. If there's someone like that from your life, and you want to tell them how much you love them this Valentine's Day in a meaningful way, consider sending them Winston flowers from WBUR. And your support will help us tell more stories every day. Check out our choices at WBUR.org.
0: Choose your gift by noon tomorrow so Winston can get flowers to your Valentine on Monday. That gives them more time to enjoy your gift. Go to WBUR.org or call 1 800 909 9287. And when you send your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR, you help us bring you the vital reporting from our climate team. And you may be thinking about climate today with the great but abnormal warm weather. Coming up, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what to expect next week from our climate team. That's the reporting that you make possible every day. So choose your special gift for your special someone at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News.
5: I'm Leila Faldil.
12: And I'm A. martinez Despite talk of a possible recession, the job market is not slowing down. One possible explanation may be something called labor hoarding. That's when employers hold on to more workers than they need. Darian Woods and Adrian Ma from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money, found it's a
28: little more complicated than that. To better understand how employers are feeling about their staffing situations in this uncertain economic time, We spoke with Mike Kading. He's CEO of a company called Norhart in the Twin Cities area.
27: We design, build and rent apartments and we're really focused at driving down the cost of housing.
28: Norhart
4: does everything from making fittings for their apartments to constructing the buildings and managing the rentals. And Mike is still hiring for a bunch of roles.
27: precast concrete erector.
28: That is a person who helps hoist up big slabs of concrete.
27: The steel wall panel plant factory foreman.
28: That is a supervisor for a factory that makes steel
4: walls. And to attract the best staff, Mike says he pays top of the market rate and he gives this message to his existing workers if another company calls them.
27: Take the call when a recruiter calls you. We want working here to be a choice that you made. If they offer something better, we will match or beat what's out there because we never want payer benefits to be the reason why you leave. But there are
28: storm clouds in the housing industry. Across the country, demand for apartments is down, new construction starts are falling away, and there's a chance Mike won't need all of those new workers over the next couple of years. Still, Mike says,
27: I am going to fight tooth and nail. I'm going to give up my own paycheck before I'm going to lose that person. And maybe that's borne out a little bit of the fact over the last three, five years, it's been so hard to find those good people. And that's so ingrained in my mind.
8: That is a very common experience across the economy.
4: Julia Pollock is the chief economist at the job site ZipRecruiter.
8: We just ran a survey at 2,500 people who started jobs in the last six months. And about one in four of these new hires say that their previous employer asked them to stay and countered their outside offer. That shows how much employers are trying to hang on to their workers.
4: There's this idea that's been talked about called labor hoarding. Do you think this might be part of the story?
13: It
8: could be. There are some surveys that suggest that companies are holding on to more workers than they need. But many industries like leisure and hospitality still have a substantial shortfall in staffing.
28: Julia says the big reason for this struggle to hire is because there are just millions of workers who have left the workforce during the pandemic.
4: I mean, just stepping back, this whole story of employers still scrambling for workers kind of feels at odds with all those layoffs that were announced recently.
8: I think one way to interpret them is that tech and finance punch above their weight in headlines. You know, the Goldman Sachs of the world, the Facebooks, the Googles, they're the opinion makers, whereas it's the, you know, McDonald's and the Macy's and the companies on Main Street that employ far more Americans.
28: Julia says. While labor hoarding might be happening in some places, the bigger factor seems to be that Main Street is still hungry for workers. Adrian Ma, Darian Woods, NPR News.
11: Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
12: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Chinoy. Coming up, the band Paramore was a pop-punk favorite 20 years ago. Now lead singer Haley Williams is back with a new album that shows pop-punk. Age gracefully. And in 20 minutes, Russia may be draining a huge artificial lake in southern Ukraine with devastating consequences expected. It's
17: 7.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Live Nation, presenting Chris Stapleton's All-American Roadshow with Charlie Crockett and the War and Treaty on
20: Friday, June 9th. LiveNation.com. Sending Winston Flowers from WBUR supports your source for news. Order yours by noon tomorrow for delivery Monday. Visit WBUR.org.
0: And just to underline what Daryl just said, keep in mind that time is running out if you want your Valentine to get their Winston flowers by Monday so they can enjoy them all Valentine's Day. You've got to put your order in by noon tomorrow. Go to WBUR.org or call one 800 909 Nine two eight seven, and I wanted to share with you some of the great reporting you help make possible when you send your Valentine Winston flowers from WBR. Next he- next week, you're going to hear some great examples. We have a series that will focus on PFAS, the widely used, long lasting chemicals that break down very slowly over time and are often found in drinking water. Each day next week, WBUR reporters will bring you stories about water safety and what happens when PFAS enters our bodies. Hear the stories next week and make sure WBUR can keep covering the environment and other issues you care about when you choose the perfect gift for your special someone from Winston Flowers at WBUR. Uh, go to WBUR.org, or if calling is easier, you can reach us at 1-800-909-9287. And thank you.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
5: And I'm Leila Faldel. Singer Haley Williams was a teenager in the mid-2000s when she and her friends formed the band Paramore. And back then, she didn't really pay attention to current events.
29: It's almost embarrassing how just ignorant i was to so many things that are happening right around me
5: now at 34 she can't look away this
13: is why i don't leave the house you say the cost is better, but you won't catch me up. oh why this is why
5: i spoke with haley williams about paramore's new album this is why
29: and about some of the lyrics she doesn't sing anymore the impression that Paramore slash I have given off in the past is one that's very bubbly and colorful. Mm. And that's not really how I am. I think, in fact, I'm the
13: opposite.
29: The News was one of the last songs we wrote, and it was kind of in the second or third week of the war on ukraine mm-hmm. it was very very present yeah i just couldn't stop crying i just felt like what is our purpose like what is the point
13: every second I heart
29: it's just really overwhelming mm. and at the same time when i unplug i don't really feel that much better for it i don't even know that i rest when i unplug but yeah that tension of that decision and being in between wanting to protect your energy and wanting to change the world in some way mm. is something that i've just talked to so many friends about and everyone is experiencing this That was kind of the culmination of just a lot of frustration of feeling like you can't get away from how sad the world is some days. I needed a place to put that.
5: Let's talk about Se You write about how getting better is boring.
29: What (laughs) happens when you actually do the work to get better? Man, it can be so romantic to live like a reckless life. I think I got enough of that. Having just gone through a divorce, I I was obviously aware that I was kind of empty. And there was a recklessness to just drinking every night and kind of partying with the band and the crew and um, finding myself again There's just been a lot of chaos and stress. Every struggle, it didn't feel like I came out the other end better. Doing things like getting in bed early and reading a book or turning off my phone at a certain time and not working, all those things were so healing. But yeah, I I still struggle. Like I'll still just be so attracted to the idea of disorder.
5: That instantaneous sort of adrenaline rush.
29: Yeah. So you do a lot on this album. You get
5: political in moments. You talk about mental health and being okay and the chaos. You talk about men. I'd love to hear
29: about Big Man, Little Dignity. That song, well, it started with the riff, the little guitar line that, that Taylor plays in it. Zach and I heard that, we were like, we have to use this, this is sick. So before lyrics even became a part of that song, it already felt really important to the record. And um, it's so sonically pleasing to me. Whenever Taylor or Zach will bring music like that, it's like a reflex. I just start writing the, like something pointed to it. It's like, I wish I could just be like, this is a beautiful piece of music. I'm gonna write something really lovely (laughs) to this. I don't know, somehow it greenlights all my most angsty and darkest thoughts.
5: The other thing that's happening is everything old is new again for young people. <laughs> you know, one of Paramore's biggest hits in its history, Misery mm-hmm. Business, is is back in fashion right now or has <laughs> been, um, but it's a song that you have a complicated relationship and you retired and brought back. Mm-hmm. Why the change of heart there?
29: Yeah. We wrote that song when I was 17, trying to figure out who I was, having crushes on people. It's essentially a tear out from my diary set to music. If I just think about it in the context of like a young adult TV show, it was like me and another female character had a spat. And that episode became our biggest breakthrough song. My relationship with that song is complicated. It doesn't sound like who we feel like anymore. You know, those are teenage yearbook photos. And we've now decided to bring that song back. And you're bringing it back unchanged. I mean,
5: I know one of the biggest criticisms to the song was the term whore for a woman.
29: Yeah, the line in the song goes, once a whore, you're nothing more. And um, I can remember being a teenager being like, that's really funny, like, you know, just being yeah, like different figuring out how to write like my peers at the time, which mm. were all, you know, guy young guys. They probably didn't really know any better either, you know, yeah. but I felt like, well, man, I must be really saying something here, but I'm like a kid. Seventeen. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I so I don't say that line and I actually poke fun when we play it live you know, fans in the crowd sometimes will sing it with, with fervor, you know? And I'll point at them and be like, you're canceled, you know? like I'm <laughs> trying, to, trying to make light of it because truthfully, it just has nothing to do with who we are anymore. And the best part is bringing a fan on stage to just sing the last chorus with us. And yeah. I, I cry every time because it's their moment to take the mic and feel like unbridled joy. Hayley Williams
5: from the band Paramore. Their new album is called This Is Why. Thank you so much, Haley, and
29: congratulations. Thank you, I appreciate you so much.
13: Break,
5: it, it it's Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by BJ Lederman. I'm Layla Falzul. And I'm A. Martinez.
14: I'm all things considered executive producer Jonathan Kane and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Multiple reports say former Vice President Mike Pence has been subpoenaed by the special counsel investigating attempts to overturn the 2020 election. It's Friday, February 10th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, more than 22,000 people are now confirmed dead from the earthquake in Turkey and Syria earlier this week. Survivors are dealing with dire conditions.
23: It's freezing conditions, um, snowing, people are homeless, um, the heating supplies are are not good enough and not the quality, people are burning rubbish.
0: Also this hour, Russia appears to be draining a huge artificial lake in southern Ukraine. And Iran's supreme leader says he'll pardon thousands of people arrested for participating in protests, activists say it's an empty gesture.
9: The majority of the folks who are given amnesty here are not the people that were participating in those protests.
0: Sunny and low 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The death toll has soared past 20,000 people from this week's earthquakes in Syria and Turkey. Rescuers are still pulling people from underneath, crushing tons of debris. But time is short to save others. It's been difficult to get disaster relief to victims, especially in war-torn Syria. That country is under heavy economic sanctions. But as NPR's Kristen Wright reports, U.S. officials are making sure quake relief does reach Syria.
9: The Treasury Department announced it's issuing a special license to authorize six months of earthquake relief to Syria, help otherwise prohibited by U.S. sanctions. Earlier this week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken pledged to get aid to the Syrian people. Kieran Barnes is with the international aid group Mercy Corps and spoke to NPR.
23: We've been dealing with the impact of the the conflict in Ukraine, the lack of food that's been provided in northwest Syria, and then more recently, cholera.
9: The U.N. says northwestern Syria was home to almost two million people displaced even before the quake. Kristen Wright, NPR News, Washington.
2: Congress is considering stronger protections for air travelers. This comes as a Senate panel grilled a Southwest Airlines executive yesterday. NPR's David Shaper reports thousands of Southwest flights were canceled over the holidays, stranding passengers for days.
14: One called it an unmitigated disaster, another an epic screw-up. As senators demanded Southwest chief operating officer explain what went wrong and how the airline will fix its problems. Southwest's Pilots Union President Casey Murray told a panel that the Christmas time
1: operational debacle wasn't a one-time event. For years, our pilots have been sounding the alarm about Southwest's inadequate crew scheduling technology and outdated operational processes. Unfortunately, those warnings have been summarily ignored by Southwest leaders. The
14: Southwest official acknowledged that they messed up and apologized. He says the airline is investing billions in upgrades to ensure that such a system-wide meltdown doesn't happen again. David Shaper, NPR News.
2: Florida athletic officials have decided against requiring high school athletes to complete a form that includes the athletes' menstrual cycles. That section was previously optional. But NPR Sarah McCammon reports many are concerned about how reproductive health information could be misused.
29: After hearing from the public, the board voted 14-2 to 2 to adopt a new set of forms which no longer contain questions about menstruation. Going forward, starting next school year when this takes effect, doctors will just have to submit a one-page form signing off on the athlete's eligibility. That's instead of a longer one with
2: more detailed medical information. NPR Sarah McCammon reporting the Florida officials did vote to include a new question on the form, telling high school athletes to identify their sex at birth. Some observers say they're worried that information will be used to target transgender athletes. This is NPR.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chinoy. The T station in Cambridge is back open to red line riders this morning. It's been closed since last weekend when a car crashed in the station garage. The main lobby is staying closed for repairs. Riders will need to use the Russell Field entrance, which is a two minute walk from the garage. The two people driving the Green Line train that ran over a college student last month are off the job. T officials say the move is normal for any accidents involving injuries. The employees will return to their jobs if they're cleared after the investigation is over. The Massachusetts program that helps people get health insurance is preparing for a surge in customers. Congress required states to keep people continuously enrolled in Medicaid through the pandemic. That program will end next month. The Mass Health Connector expects up to 200,000 people to need help getting health insurance plans as a result. The New England Foundation for the Arts is looking for applicants for a new five-week workshop. The goal is to help artists create new and vibrant public art across the Commonwealth. More from WBUR's Christella Guetta. The free
19: virtual workshop is called Making It Public. It will teach artists about the many forms of public art, how projects get funded, and how to respond to calls for proposals from cities and towns. Kamaria Carrington is Program Officer for Public Art at the New England Foundation for the Arts. I believe public art has so much potential and possibility to do the work of reflecting who we are, what we hope for, and what we want to see in our communities. The deadline to register is Monday at midnight at nefa.org slash makingitpublic. The workshop is open to artists of all disciplines. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. It's 8.06.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Creativity Pays. Graphic and game design, illustration, animation, photography, film, VFX, and fine arts. Leslie.edu.
0: The Celtics will try to make it three wins in a row tonight. They're hosting the Charlotte Hornets at the Garden. And your forecast mostly cloudy this morning with sun by the afternoon. It'll be windy at times. Near record warmth today with a high near 60. Partly cloudy tonight with temperatures in the 30s. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 40s, sunny again on Sunday and in the low 50s. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston at 806.
17: WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just,
30: equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. I'm on point, executive producer Jonathan Dyer. When the Japanese pufferfish wants to find a mate, it sets out to impress with all it has, its fins and a sandy ocean floor. And over several days and nights without sleep, it carves the most incredible, symmetrical sculpture in the sand, a huge circular array of ridges, troughs, peaks, and valleys decorated with perfectly placed shells scavenged from the seabed. It's beautiful, not just to a puffer fish, but to our eyes too. And why does it create this thing of beauty? It just knows, it's what it needs to do for love. Fortunately, it's so much easier for you to create something beautiful. Send your Valentine, Winston Flowers from WBUR, and in doing so, you'll create stories that enrich and inspire all of us. Visit WBUR.org to get started.
0: Choose your gift by noon tomorrow to have it delivered on Monday. That way, your valentine will have more time to enjoy their flowers. Go to WBUR.org, like J.D. said, or call 1-800-909-9287. There are four options to choose from. There's the classic, a dozen long-stem red roses presented elegantly the way Winston, Winston Flowers does. Imagine how special the person you want to show your love for will feel when they get that. Support WBUR and make their day with a contribution of $150. Go to wbyr.org to see that option and the three others or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you.
12: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California.
5: And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. In Ukraine, an important reservoir is apparently being drained by Russia. That's according to satellite imagery obtained by NPR.
25: At
12: stake is drinking water for many thousands of people, as well as agricultural production and safety at Europe's largest nuclear plant. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has been covering this story. Hi, Jeff.
31: Good morning.
5: Good morning. So what's happening at this reservoir?
31: so this reservoir is called the kachovka reservoir it's about the size of utah's great salt lake and it's really important to southern ukraine it supplies drinking water and fills irrigation canals all over the region My colleagues and I have been looking over satellite data and images which clearly show that since November, the water level has been plummeting at this reservoir. It's now at its lowest level in 30 years.
5: Okay, so two questions. What's Mm -hmm. causing it to drain so quickly and how do we know it's Russia?
31: Right, so here's sort of the setup of the whole situation. The thing holding the water in the reservoir is a large hydroelectric dam. That's holding the, the water back. The dam also is on the front lines of the war, and on one side is Ukrainian territory, and on the other side is Russian territory. Satellite images very clearly show that sluice gates on the Russian side of the dam are open. They're letting the water out. I spoke to David Helms. He's a retired meteorologist and satellite expert with the US government who's sort of become obsessed with this whole situation. And he told me that the way the dam is set up, there's really only one side that could be doing this.
14: It's the Russians. The Ukrainians, if they wanted to, they can't get across. They can't just like swim across, climb up. They can't do that. They would be dead because the Russians would shoot them.
31: And a statement from local officials in Ukraine indicates that they, too, think Russia is to blame for what's happening.
5: And it sounds like if this huge reservoir empties out, the consequences are dire.
31: Yeah, one of the biggest dangers is that the Zaporizhzhia nuclear power plant, that plant has, of course, been on the front lines throughout this conflict, and it needs cooling water for its nuclear cores. That water comes from this reservoir. The International Atomic Energy Agency has already put out a statement about falling water levels. Beyond that, this reservoir supplies drinking water to several cities in southern Ukraine, and it's used to irrigate around half a million acres of farmland. Mm. So this is a very arid part of the country, and it really depends on it.
5: Why would the Russians be doing this?
31: Well, we don't really know. David Helms thinks this may be another tool of attack against Ukraine and its economy.
14: That's as good as knocking out the power grid.
31: But I spoke to Brian Koons. He's at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. And he says that most of the irrigation channels run to the Russian-held side of the reservoir. So he doesn't really understand why they drain it.
30: It just seems strange that they'd be doing a scorched earth on territory that they claim publicly that they want to keep.
31: Another possibility is that the Russians are doing this for military reasons, to flood the Dnipro River below the reservoir and prevent Ukrainian troops from advancing.
5: So can Ukraine do anything?
31: You know, local uh, Ukrainian officials said on Telegram they're looking to try and slow the loss by filling the reservoir with water from other reservoirs. But as long as those sluice gates are open, it's going to be really tough.
5: NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Thanks, Jeff.
31: Thank you. The United States Treasury Department says that it will issue a
12: license permitting earthquake aid to arrive in Syria that would have otherwise been prohibited by U.S. sanctions. According to the United Nations, northwestern Syria is home to about 1.8 million displaced people who were already suffering from more than a decade of war. And now this... Among the international aid groups on the ground is Mercy Corps. I spoke earlier by Skype with the group's Syria Country Director, Kieran Barnes, and he told me about the particular challenges of providing earthquake relief in the area.
23: It's a very cut-off, isolated pocket of Syria. The infrastructure is very weak. So even just trying to make calls with them on the first few days was hard. The electricity was out, the internet, the phone lines. so. Most of this week has been about gathering information and doing kind of bare minimum at this point.
12: And what kind of information are you hearing from your colleagues?
23: Uh, So we have uh, about 45 staff who are actually based uh, in northwest Syria. Many of them have been affected personally, and sadly, some of them have lost uh, their wives and children in this disaster. But those who are able to work are going out to the communities. They've seen lots of people sleeping in cars, people standing next to rubble, and hearing their family members stuck inside. But there's nothing they can do for them. They don't have the same level of uh, heavy machinery or expertise. So that's been extremely difficult. And then on top of that, it's the winter. So it's freezing conditions, um, snowing, people are homeless. um, The heating supplies are not good enough and not the quality people are burning rubbish uh, just to stay warm. So it's, and it's also very confusing. I think that's the other factor, especially in the first few hours with the aftershocks, people were confused. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know where to stay and what was the safest thing for them and their families.
12: The U.N. aid convoy crossed into Northwest Syria uh, for the first time since the earthquake hit on Monday. How much do you think this will help the people that really need it?
23: That supply line is absolutely critical to this response. Normally, we only have a few crossing points into Turkey and one that is designated that the UN can use. That's not enough in normal times, but particularly with this earthquake, we are gonna need a lot of supplies coming in. Most of the organizations, including ourselves, we have some pre-positioned kits. So we have 1,700 kits that we're able to distribute now. We've managed to procure another 800 hygiene kits and 150 shelter kits, but eventually those supplies are going to run out maybe in a matter of days, um, certainly in weeks. So we need both the humanitarian aid to be flowing through with the UN, but we also need the commercial sector to be running as well, so that we can procure directly inside Syria and deliver to people on the ground.
12: Does Turkey need to open up more crossing points, or is security just too touchy of a situation there?
23: It's a very difficult political issue. And I think it's for all parties involved who have been involved in this conflict to make it possible for us to access people and the supplies that we need.
12: Can you uh, help our listeners understand just how challenging the situation is for aid workers in Syria after more than a decade of war?
23: Absolutely. I mean they, our teams are incredibly resilient. I mean, they've been through a lot from the last twelve uh, years, and to be honest, in the last twelve months, we've been dealing with the impact of the the conflict in Ukraine, the lack of food that's been provided in Northwest Syria, and then more recently cholera uh, just before winter, dealing with all these crises one after another after another. and then there are people who are displaced inside Northwest Syria multiple times, constantly moving with their families in temporary shelter. The earthquake on Monday is particularly acute. It's it's you know, within minutes, people's lives have changed. Uh, and our teams are having to respond to that, but they themselves have also been affected by it. We can't bring in people into the area. That's one of the biggest difficulties. We can't kind of fly in lots of specialists to this. This is Syrians helping Syrians on the ground. And I don't think we have the full picture yet. And um, we're certainly moving more into the humanitarian phase where we need to provide for those who have survived. And we need to think about their shelter, their food, their water, and to keep them warm. And that's going to be the priority now, I think. What does
12: Mercy Corps need the most to effectively do its work right now?
23: We certainly need the international community to, to step up. Uh, Syria has, uh, has fallen out of the spotlight. So we need the, the finances that we can then go and purchase things inside Syria and start responding. We're looking at things like water supply to the camps where we work, which have been damaged. Uh, soil is seeping in. It's contaminating the water. We need to address those issues immediately, and we need the funding to do that.
12: And is that how people here in the U.S. can help with this situation in Syria and Turkey?
23: Absolutely. I think it's the fastest way to respond. Money moves quickly, obviously, and we can get that into Syria. And our teams can go out and work with local suppliers. We have engineers. We need to recruit more staff, to be honest, on the ground and to get them working. So this is the most urgent thing that we need right now.
12: That's Kieran Barnes, Syrian Country Director for Mercy Corps. Kieran, thanks.
23: Thanks.
5: There are still hundreds of thousands of COVID cases reported in the U.S. each week, along with a few thousand COVID-related deaths. But mask mandates, remember those, are pretty much a thing of the past.
12: Some are still masking, many aren't. So what should you do? We decided to get advice from a few COVID experts.
30: When we go out to the supermarket or any other activity that's indoors where there'll be a group of people, we continue to be masked.
5: That's Dr. William Schaffner. He's a professor of infectious diseases at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Schaffner says he and his wife are pretty careful because they're at higher risk for serious illness if they get infected. They're also caring for a loved one who's undergoing chemotherapy.
12: Dr. Bob Wachter is the chair of the Department of Medicine
17: at UC San Francisco. I have come to calibrate my mask wearing based on my best-educated guess as to the possibility that someone has COVID and also how important it is for me to do the thing without a mask.
5: Wachter makes the call on a case-by-case basis. Outside, no mask. A small gathering where everyone's vaccinated. He would drop masks there too, especially if everyone just tested negative and there's an open window. But when he goes into a crowded theater or an airplane…
17: Those places I'm wearing a mask now. And I suspect I will wear a mask forever. Forever is a long time. But the threat of COVID now, I think, is probably not all that different than it'll be a year from now or five years from now. Dr. Monica Gandhi, an infectious diseases
12: expert at UCSF, says there's far less need for masking now given the immunity provided by infections and vaccines. Still, she says everyone needs to assess their own risk. I've been just riveted by what I think are very impressive results.
15: These vaccines are really powerful in terms of what they were designed to do, which is to prevent
5: severe disease. Wachter notes that he's fully vaccinated and no longer worries about becoming seriously ill or dying from COVID.
17: I worried a lot about that three years ago, but that's not my concern now. My concern and the reason I'm still moderately careful is I don't want to get COVID and be laid up for a week or however long. And I don't want to get long COVID.
12: And Walker says masking has also helped them avoid catching upper respiratory infections. So while he'd rather ditch the mask altogether, he says occasionally wearing one is a relatively small price to pay to stay healthy. Coming up on All Things Considered, thousands of children and teenagers experiencing a mental health crisis are stuck in hospital emergency rooms because psychiatric units are full. But in Massachusetts, some are offered an alternative. To hear the story, stream NPR on your smartphone or computer, or just listen to us on your reliable radio. This is NPR News.
0: I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, we recap a Senate panel hearing yesterday where lawmakers blasted Southwest Airlines for its handling of a meltdown during the holidays. It's a 20. And in your forecast, sunny today with a high near 61. It'll also be windy. Tonight, mostly clear skies and a low around freezing. Still windy. Tomorrow, sunny and windy again, but cooler with a high near 41. Mostly sunny on Sunday with a high near 51. Right now, it's 53 degrees in Boston.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com.
18: Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that make your world bigger. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order by noon tomorrow for Monday delivery of any of our four choices, including two dozen long-stemmed red
0: roses. Visit
18: WBUR.org.
0: Valentine's Day is coming up fast. This is when you need to act if you want to send Winston flowers from WBUR and have them delivered on Monday, the day before Valentine's Day. Maybe to a romantic partner, maybe to your mom, maybe send these flowers to yourself because you deserve them too. The deadline is noon tomorrow to get your order in and it's your chance to show your love and your support for public radio. That was what one WBUR listener was getting at when they sent flowers from us earlier this week. In the message with the flowers, they wrote, Happy Valentines. Let's keep enjoying our mutual support of good journalism together. Go to wbur.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research, that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
5: And I'm Leila Falted, a top executive with Southwest Airlines endured a grilling on Capitol Hill yesterday.
12: A hearing focused on the operational meltdown in December that screwed up holiday plans for hundreds of thousands of people. The Senate Commerce Committee asked pointed questions about Southwest's disastrous performance, and lawmakers are considering strengthening consumer protections for air travelers. NPR's transportation correspondent
5: David Shaper is covering this story. Good morning, David.
12: Good morning, Leila.
5: So how did senators talk about the meltdown in yesterday's hearing?
14: Well, there was a lot of indignation and frustration. It was on full display, even among longtime fans and customers of Southwest Airlines, like Republican Ted Cruz of Southwest's home state of Texas. It was an epic screw up. Nevada Democrat Jackie Rosen called it an unmitigated disaster. Illinois' Tammy Duckworth ripped into Southwest and other airlines. for She puts it uh, predatory practices that treat customers like suckers. And on and on it went, with senators Mm. from both parties asking pointed questions about how this fiasco happened and what's being done to make sure it doesn't happen again.
5: Epic screw-up, unmitigated disasters, predatory Mm. practices. I mean, how did Southwest respond?
14: Well, Chief Operating Officer Andrew Watterson really responded the only way he could. He apologized, and then he admitted that the airline messed up. In hindsight, we did not have enough winter operations resiliency, from where and how we
32: de-ice aircraft to the cold resiliency of of our ground support equipment and infrastructure.
14: Watterson added that the failure of antiquated crew scheduling systems and other technology, staffing, and communications issues compounded problems. He says the airline is investing more than a billion dollars in technology and equipment upgrades to make sure this doesn't happen again. But this wasn't a one-time thing for Southwest. They've had a few other operational meltdowns in recent years. Casey Murray, the president of the Southwest Pilots Union, told the committee that pilots have been sounding the alarm, but those warnings were ignored.
1: Our recent history and the data shows a pattern of increasingly disruptive operational failures, misprioritation of resources, and worst of all, a hollow leveraging of our culture to cover up poor management decisions.
5: Wow. So what kind of consumer protections are lawmakers considering in the wake of all this?
14: Well, consumer advocates would like compensation for significant flight delays, as is the case in Europe, mandatory reimbursement for meals, lodging, and other expenses that are incurred because of delays and cancellations, even reciprocity between the airlines. So if one airline cancels your flight, they would put you on another airline for free. You know, you got to remember that several other airlines have had significant problems with delays and cancellations in the last couple of years as they've tried to recover from the pandemic. Paul Hudson brought that up. He's with the
30: group Flyers' rights. Under the current system, airlines are actually incentivized to provide bad service. Good service costs money, and bad service saves money. And that money can be used for dividends, stock buybacks, and executive compensation.
14: But, you know, airline industry representatives say that such uh, further regulations will only drive up fares, it would hurt competition, and could reduce airline service in some parts of the country. And many Republicans who were on the panel tended to agree, saying that if customers have a problem with the airlines, they should just, uh, you know, fly a different airline.
5: Hmm. NPR's David Shaper, thank you so much, David.
12: My pleasure, Layla time now for StoryCorps. Nearly 20 years ago, David Hedison came to a StoryCorps booth with his youngest daughter Serena to share something they'd never discussed.
17: I wanted
7: to be an actor, but I realized it was going to be a battle because I had a very Armenian nose. And in those days, to get a job, you had to have the boy-next-door face.
12: He revealed to his daughter that he'd had a nose job. David Hedison went on to have a prolific career as a television, film, and stage actor. He died in 2019 at the age of 92. Recently, his daughter Serena came back to StoryCorps with her sister Alex to reflect on the secret
33: their dad shared. I was really surprised because we never talked about it as a family. My recollection of realizing that something was different was seeing older photos of him at grandma's house and thinking like, wait a second. Like, that's dad? And even then I thought, well, maybe he grew out of his nose too, like he said that I'm going to do. Years prior, I was 12, and I guess I had spent a lot of time looking at myself in the mirror, and all I could see was my nose. And I remember asking dad, like, dad, can I have a nose job? He never in that moment said, I didn't like the way I looked once too. And he just laughed And said, oh, honey, you got a terrific nose. There's something about how he said you're going to be okay. And I never thought about getting a nose job after that moment. I actually have more of dad's nose than you do. His new nose. No, No. his,
18: his, his old nose. I see dad in my face. He's in my gesture, like the way I move my hand and the way I'll make a dumb joke or... Try to make someone laugh because I want them to feel seen. Yeah. What for me still is painful is that he walked away from the parts of himself that he felt didn't belong. But I see Armenian in my face and I like it. I like the things that make me feel I have a unique sense of belonging in the world. I carry him
33: with me. Yeah. That's his legacy.
12: That was Serena and Alex Hedison remembering their father, David Hedison. Their conversation will be archived at the Library of Congress.
11: Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com slash Solterra.
12: Tomorrow on Weekend Edition, NPR Scott Simon speaks with Edith Renfro-Smith, the first black woman to graduate from Grinnell College, who is now 108 years old. To hear the story, stream NPR on your smartphone or computer, or just listen to us on your reliable radio. This is NPR News.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, dedicated to providing artisanal and sustainably sourced furniture with design consultants to help with your furnishing needs. CircleFurniture.com.
22: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The death toll in Turkey and Syria following Monday's powerful earthquake now tops 20,000. Efforts continue to find additional survivors in the rubble of collapsed buildings as more international aid makes its way into the region. People doing search and rescue say they still need more heavy equipment to move debris. Didem Demirikan is with Oxfam, a charity doing relief work in Turkey.
3: There are aftershocks, so people are scared to enter into their homes, into their houses, even if they are not damaged. So people are sleeping in cars.
22: Disaster officials say several children were found alive today in the rubble, including a newborn. A reservoir in Ukraine is being drained, apparently by Russia. That's according to satellite imagery obtained by NPR. As NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports, the imagery shows open gates on the Russian side of the reservoir's hydroelectric dam.
31: This reservoir is called the Kachovka Reservoir. It's about the size of Utah's Great Salt Lake, and it's really important to southern Ukraine. It supplies drinking water and fills irrigation canals all over the region. My colleagues and I have been looking over satellite data and images, which clearly show that since November, the water level has been plummeting at this reservoir. It's now at its lowest level in 30 years. This is NPR News
22: from Washington. From WBUR
0: in Boston, I'm Rupa Hanoy. Boston's Turkish-American community is coming together to find ways to support victims of the devastating earthquake. The Dunya Ensemble is hosting a benefit concert at First Church in Cambridge tonight. Mehmet Ali Sonnikol directs the group. He says he wants to do what he can to help.
27: At the end of the day, the concert is going to be a vessel, a way for us to gather people together, have them sit down, reflect, you know, with, with uh, uh,
7: pleasurable music.
0: All proceeds from the concert will go directly to aid organizations working in Turkey. The first of two finalists to become the next chancellor at UMass Amherst will visit campus today. Paul Tikulski is the current dean of Oklahoma State University's College of Engineering. University leaders picked him out of more than 100 potential candidates. The other finalist, Javier Reyes, is the interim chancellor of the University of Illinois-Chicago. He plans to visit the campus next week. And some sad news. After 25 years, the annual New Bedford Folk Festival is over. Organizers say rising costs for the event make, the, make it unsustainable. They say they're grateful for all the people who attended and brought life to downtown New Bedford. It's 833.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step plymouthrock.com slash WBUR.
0: The Celtics will host the Charlotte Hornets tonight. They could be with new center forward Mike Mescala. He was acquired yesterday in a trade with Oklahoma City in the deal. Boston sent Justin Jackson along with two future second round draft picks. Clear skies and windy day with temperatures rising to the low 60s. Tonight, still windy and skies stay clear as it falls to the low 30s. Back down to the low 40s on Saturday, but it'll be sunny and it'll stay sunny on Sunday. We'll have temperatures in the low 50s. Right now, it's 48 degrees in Boston at 833.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e Martinez in Culver City, California.
11: And I'm Leila Fadil
5: in Washington, D.C. Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei says the country will pardon or commute the sentences of tens of thousands of prisoners ahead of Saturday's anniversary of the 1979 revolution. That might sound like good news for the about 20,000 people that activists say have been jailed since protests broke out in September over the death of Masa Amini in police custody. She was also known by her Kurdish name, Gina, But the amnesty comes with conditions. It doesn't cover charges related to espionage, links to foreign intelligence services, or attacks on government or public sites — in other words, charges that many Iranian protesters face. So is this a genuine promise to release thousands of Iranians detained for dissent, or is it about controlling the narrative after months of protest? We reached out to Gisunia, a human rights attorney who directs the strategic litigation project at the Atlantic Council, to put these pardons in context for us. These pardons happen periodically. It is usually in conjunction
9: with some sort of Shia holiday or another day of recognition. So, this one was an announcement ahead of the 44th anniversary of the revolution of 79. It definitely, I think, helps with the Islamic Republic's narrative that nothing is going on and that they're going to be lenient with prisoners. But the reality is that almost 20,000 people have been arrested in connection to these protests. Everyone who is facing capital punishment, which is about 100, are still in prison. 700 other people have been sentenced to draconian long sentences. And the majority of the folks who are given amnesty here are not the people
5: that were participating in those protests. And this also came with conditions, right? Not any anti-government protester is going to be released under this amnesty. Yeah.
9: So a lot of times, even if somebody who is a prisoner of conscience or a political prisoner is released, there are certain conditions. They're maybe put under house arrest. They're mamnun khuruj, which means they're not allowed to leave the country. In this case, it seems that a lot of people had to sign quote unquote regret letters asking for forgiveness. So yeah, this is not a sort of unconditional release.
5: So then ultimately, how many of the thousands that were announced would actually walk out of jail? You know, in the Islamic Republic, you can imprison debtors and
9: they'll release people who owe debts, who are sick, who are older. So although it's been reported at a time after this, you know, massive state crackdown on peaceful protests and all these people in jail, it's not actually that significant in terms of what it
5: means for releasing protesters. Now, the Speaker of the Parliament called this a, quote, fatherly gesture. Who is this gesture for?
9: One is a global audience. There has been a UN fact-finding mission set up to investigate the situation in Iran since mid-September. And I think this is a bit of a, a play to say that, you know, there's nothing going on here. We're releasing prisoners now. The other audience could be domestic. Uh, despite the fact that many, many Iranians get their news from satellite television and looking to other sources, a lot are still tuned in to state TV. And so they are getting the message that Khamenei has taken mercy on a lot of these individuals, but not getting the full facts of what is really happening.
5: So what is happening on the ground? I mean, I know this was The main headline for weeks, these mass protests, the executions, and the crying mother outside when she heard of her son's death.
9: So the country obviously had been experiencing protests since December 2017, but this was the most sustained period of protests with people coming to the streets. Um, I think one challenging coverage is that when international correspondents are allowed in, they're not allowed to visit the prisons to see what's happening there. And we very much rely on citizen journalists to get the news out. And when the internet is disrupted and when there are issues in getting that news out, unfortunately, we don't get the full picture. But when it's freezing cold and when you risk being put to death, obviously you know, the protests will take different forms then. So their narrative is, is
5: not correct. Gisunia of the Atlantic Council, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on.
12: The Super Bowl is one of the biggest sporting events in the world. On Sunday, more than 100 million people are expected to watch the matchup between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles. And with sports betting now legal in many states, the stakes have been raised for many fans. NPR's H.J. My reports.
26: It's almost impossible to watch a game nowadays without seeing one of these. Yes, every moment in life is a bet. DraftKings. Now I know it's the Super Bowl and all, but everyone gets a free bet except the mm-hmm. win of Betmgm. Nearly five years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a ban on sports betting. Now, over 30 states plus D.C. have legalized it, and the American Gaming Association says betting on this year's Super Bowl will break records.
23: Our estimates
32: suggest that 50 million American adults are gonna bet up to $16 billion
1: on this year's game.
26: Casey Clark is the senior vice president of the AGA. He says the 2018 Supreme Court ruling has changed the attitude towards sports betting and made it vastly easier to access.
32: More than half of all American adults are gonna be able to place a bet on the Super Bowl for the first time in their legal market. And that's a really exciting evolution.
26: It's also an about face for the sports world. The NFL and other leagues once saw sports betting as a potential threat to the integrity of the game. Just over a decade ago, they vigorously fought the legalization of sports gambling in New Jersey. Now, they each earn hundreds of millions of dollars from sports betting. Leagues realized that legalization means more betting, which in turn leads to more ad revenue, says Phil Sherwood with the National Council on Problem Gambling.
1: The ability to place bets on your mobile device, right? Think about having a casino in your pocket. And that accessibility will really drive usage.
26: With sports betting's growing place in culture,
1: there's an increased risk for abuse. Gambling addiction is real. It's really no different than alcohol addiction, except in many ways, it's more insidious.
26: An estimated two million Americans have a severe gambling problem. But for the vast majority of fans, sports betting provides an added incentive to follow more games. So if you put money on Sunday's big game, do it responsibly. H.J. M.I., N.P.R. News, Washington.
12: If you or someone you know may have a gambling problem, you can call or text the National Problem Gambling Helpline Network at 1-800-522-4700. Or you can chat with one of their specialists online. Inquiries are answered 24-7 and remain confidential. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up on Morning Edition, Brazil's new president visits the White House today. He and President Biden are expected to discuss their common growing threat from right-wing extremists. In your forecast, we may come close to breaking some records today for warm temperatures. It'll be in the low 60s under clear skies. There will also be some gusty winds. Low 30s tonight and still windy. Saturday, sunny and back to the low 40s. Sunday, sunny and low 50s. Right now it's 48 degrees in Boston at 842.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solution simulator, climateinteractive.org
6: and thoughtforms-corp.com. Hi, I'm Chloe Axelson, and I'm the senior editor of WBUR's Ideas and Opinion page. I recently bought two copies of the picture book, Will It Be Okay? One for my kids, and one for the children of a dear friend. The book, by Crescent Dragon Wagon, was first published in 1977. The entirety of the story is a little girl asking her mom questions What if there's thunder and lightning? What if I forget my lines in the school play? And finally, the big one What if you die? The mom has a sensible, heartfelt approach for every conundrum, even the last one. Yes, my love, it will. It will be okay, she says. As ever, we're looking for stories that take on the big questions, for essays that seek hope and offer perspective and understanding. You can help us do that work by supporting WBUR. Send someone you love Winston flowers. Let that be your way to offer love and comfort. Visit WBUR.org to get started. If you, like many others, want
0: your valentine to get their flowers on the day before Valentine's Day, tomorrow at noon is the deadline to get your order in. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Maybe you'll choose the classic option of a dozen long-stemmed roses. That's a contribution of $150. If you've got two valentines, no judgment, there are all kinds of valentines, give a contribution of $250. There's also the 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 ultimate romance arrangement, which is roses set off against orchids, lavender, lilac, and Italian sweet pea. And the fourth option is basically multiply by 12, as in 12 months. With the flower of the month subscription, you'll show your love all year. That's a contribution of $1,200. Show your valentine your love and support WBUR. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp, Southeastern Mass, where, since 1965, their instructors have helped over 30,000 children learn to swim. MaplewoodYearRound.com.
5: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden.
17: And I'm Martinez. Brazil's
12: President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva is in Washington, D.C. to visit President Biden at the White House. The two presidents have a lot of common ground to draw on. Both have dealt with false claims of election fraud and both took power as extremists stormed their respective capitals. Here's NPR's Carrie Kahn.
3: Today's brief visit is being billed as a show of commitment to democracy. President Biden's support of Brazil's democracy has been vital, says Celso Almirante, Lula's foreign affairs advisor. Look, the U.S. is undeniably an important partner in helping Brazil through what are very dramatic times, says Almarin recently in a YouTube interview. Last month, supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro ransacked Brazil's Congress, Supreme Court and Presidential Palace.
26: Biden
3: Not ligou only was combinar, Biden one of the first world reaction. leaders to congratulate Lula after narrowly beating Bolsonaro, Não says Almorin, he also called immediately after the storming of Brazil's capital. Relations between Brazil and the U.S. were strained under Bolsonaro, a right-wing populist who was a close ally of former President Trump. But Bruno Santos, a senior advisor at the Wilson Center's Brazil Institute, says Biden and Lula now have similar goals, including fighting extremism and climate change.
34: But also there are like significant changes in the world that are happening and that are bringing more and more tension to Brazil and the U.S., especially
26: when it comes to defending democracy.
3: Looming over the 2 leader celebration of democracy is the continuous presence of former President Bolsonaro in Florida. He's been giving talks to Trump supporters and right-wing election deniers.
26: Ladies and gentlemen, get on your feet and join me in welcoming President Bolsonaro.
3: Investigators back in Brazil are looking into the former president's role in the storming of the Capitol, but it's unclear if Lula will bring up Bolsonaro's stay in the U.S. What he will be looking for is help for the Amazon fund, which was halted under Bolsonaro. The $1.3 billion fund helps reinforce protection and sustainable development. In one of his first acts since taking office, Lula sent hundreds of federal officials into Brazil's largest indigenous reserve to drive out illegal miners.
18: Ajuda. Ajuda para nós sair daqui. Videos
3: like this one of a woman asking for help to leave the Yanomami Reserve have been circulating on social media. Authorities say there are an estimated 20,000 illegal miners in the indigenous area who have polluted the Yanomami's rivers and land. Thiago de Arragao, who runs a political risk consultancy firm in D.C. and Brasilia, says he doesn't expect major announcements from the visit.
26: It's much more symbolic
12: than policy generation.
3: Particularly since there are many points on which the two leaders do not agree. Lula has made it clear he won't take sides in the Ukraine war. In fact, he has proposed brokering peace alongside other non-aligned nations, including India. de Aragao says Lula won't meddle in the U.S.'s escalating conflicts with China. He will not label
26: China as an evil empire, as something that you find the U.S. and many European countries labeling.
3: China is Brazil's number one trading partner. Lula is planning a trip there next month. In D.C., he has no scheduled public appearances. He does plan to meet with a few Democratic lawmakers and then return home tomorrow. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy e. Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel.
0: This is 90.9 WBR. Coming up this week, Nintendo announced that it will soon release a new addition to the Legend of Zelda game series. But it'll cost more than normal. In your forecast, it'll be in the low 60s today under sunny skies. It'll also be pretty windy. Tonight, clear skies and low 30s. Tomorrow, low 40s, windy and sunny. Sunday, low 50s and sunny. It's 48 degrees in Boston at 850.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Pioneer Charter School of Science, providing students with a rigorous college prep academic curriculum with two campuses serving greater Boston and the North Shore. Apply online at pioneercss.org.
34: Sending Winston flowers from WBUR supports your commitment to curiosity. Order by noon tomorrow for delivery Monday at
6: WBUR.org.
0: Tiziana said it, but I'll say it again. Get your order in by noon tomorrow in order to have your Winston flowers delivered to your special someone on Monday. You can do that by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. You should send flowers through WBUR so you can show your love for your Valentine and at the same time support local journalism. And this is a really important time to be part of the effort to support this vital source of conversation and news. It's important to show your love for your Valentine, and they will like that you are showing your support for your community. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. There are four options to choose from, from long-stemmed roses to a Flowers of the Month Club. Go to WBUR.org or call us at 1-800-909-9287 or... That's it, actually. One eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven. I also wanted to tell you about some of the messages that people send because they really think that their Valentine care. That you know, it, this is a big. Uh uh, point to play up. The, uh, here's one. The annual tradition of displaying my love language through public radio continues. Thank you for being you. I love you and appreciate you more than you know. There you go. If you needed a, a message to send in your flowers, that was that's a great one. Go to wbur.org or call 1 800 909 9287.
32: Advertisers make like an eagle or a chief, they're teaming up for their ads on Sunday. Marketplace Morning Report is supported
10: by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort, Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at viking.com.
32: I'm David Brancaccio. First, the other side of football. Ahead of the Super Bowl on Sunday, some former NFL players have filed a lawsuit accusing the league of routinely denying disability claims. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer reports.
11: The lawsuit was filed by 10 former players. They say the NFL's Disability Board doesn't hire neutral doctors to assess players' injuries, instead using doctors who have an interest in denying benefits and rewarding those who deny claims. The lawsuit seeks penalties against the NFL's disability plan and its board members, and it asks for players who were denied benefits to be reassessed and made whole. The NFL says its disability plan meets eligibility requirements agreed to by the NFL Players Association and is fair and administered by a professional staff overseen by the board. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell says the disability plan is a defined benefit and some players won't qualify. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. That roar you'll hear Sunday afternoon is partly the
32: roar of selling. The game is a rare couple of hours when perhaps 100 million people watch all at once, and advertisers have paid big for all this attention. The staff at AdAge tracks this carefully, and the publication's editor, Janine Poggi, has reconnected here for a preview. Hi, Janine. Hey, David. What's this about some brands teaming up? You may see several of them in a single ad?
34: Yeah, this is really interesting, and we're starting to see a couple of these this year where brands are actually, like, working together around their Super Bowl campaigns. So you have Netflix, who is working with Michelob Ultra on one hand, doing an ad promoting one of their golf shows that's coming out, and then Netflix is also working with General Motors to promote efforts around electric vehicles. So Netflix is a big one, sort of working with a couple of others to go out there and buddy up on some Super Bowl campaigns. It's about driving scale. You know, the, the more the merrier here and that the more brands are together, the more promotion they can give on social media and sort of build that scale, which when you're paying anywhere from, you know, six and a half, seven million dollars for a 30 second commercial, you want as much scale as you can get.
32: Now, your outfit ad age tracks with some precision diversity as reflected in these Super Bowl ads. Do you have anything you can say at this stage?
34: Yeah, so we do every year, this is our third year doing it, for every brand that's airing a national spot in the game, we send a list of questions around their diversity equity efforts. There does not seem to be as much of transparency around efforts, specifically around talking about diversity in the Black community. You know, another area that I think will be interesting to watch is around representation around disabled people and accessibility. So, ads that have captions in it that go beyond the typical closed captioning and being more accessible to that community. For all of this, I think you know, it's important to say that like, efforts are still very early and there, no one is you know, right there doing like, an amazing job, but we are starting to hear some changes as it relates to at least you know, accessibility in Super Bowl commercials.
32: Do you remember the dust-up the other day involving M&Ms? They changed the M&M character. Yet M&Ms had a whole other strategy ready to rock. Maya Rudolph from SNL, the new, you know, front person for all this. Should I take that story at face value?
34: This was really an interesting one. You know, I think whenever you talk about the Super Bowl, you have to go in with the mindset of like something is a stunt, right? Like brands, they're spending a lot of money. As I said, you know, they want the most promotion, the most noise and buzz around their commercial leading up to the game. So through that lens, you should always have an air of skepticism going into some of this. You remember Mr. Peanut Uh when they killed when planters killed off Mr. Peanut only for him to be reborn at the Super Bowl. So there's always something up their sleeve.
32: All right, Janine Poggi, she's editor at AdAge. Always good to talk to
34: you. Same here. Thanks so much. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by
10: Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. It's part of who they are. Learn more at schwab.com slash Schwab and by jll a commercial real estate leader using data and technology to solve today's complex real estate challenges learn more at jll.com jll
32: see a brighter way checking market screens here s p futures are now down four tenths percent dow futures down 100 points three tenths percent nasdaq futures down seven tenths percent crude oil is up 1.3 percent this morning You can thank Russia, which is cutting oil output to respond to sanctions, which are themselves, a response to Russia's war on Ukraine. This week, Nintendo announced that its forthcoming game, Tears of the Kingdom, part of the Legend of Zelda series, will retail for $70. That's $10 more than the standard price that video game companies have stuck to for over a decade. Now, beyond Nintendo, Xbox and PlayStation titles are getting more expensive as well. Marketplace's Justin Ho has more on game inflation.
25: Ever since video game titles started retailing for $60 around 2006, the cost of video game production has risen, says Neil Macker, an analyst at Morningstar.
16: Not only just due to complexity, but you know, increased salaries for programmers and creatives in general as tech companies at Hollywood and video game companies are fighting for a lot of the same talent.
25: Those costs are also lingering far beyond the game's initial release, since a lot of newer games have a longer lifespan. Joost Vondrena at NYU says that requires more maintenance and customer support.
22: And that then makes a lot of sense to say, hey, you know, if we're going to be doing this, then we also need to be charging more for it.
25: But Vondrena says companies have covered a lot of those costs through in-game transactions, like downloadable content and custom cosmetics, by upping price tags to $70.
22: It is
16: largely, I would say, a move by platforms and publishers to just capture more
25: market value. In other words, companies can charge $70 now because they know people will pay it. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace.
32: And Yahoo says it's going to cut 20% of its workforce, perhaps 2,000 people by the end of the year, including 1,000 people this week as part of an overhaul of its advertising division. Meanwhile, News Corp plans to lay off 5% of its employees this year, an estimated 1,200 people. News Corp, media tycoon Rupert Murdoch's company, owns Wall Street Journal, the publisher of HarperCollins, and a lot of other properties in the U.K. and Australia. Our digital producer is Jared Dang. Our engineers are Jessen Duller and Nick Esposito. I'm David Brancaccio. It's Marketplace Morning Report from APM. American Public Media.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. We'll have clear skies and it'll be windy today with temperatures rising to the low 60s. Tonight still windy and skies stay clear as it falls to the low 30s. Right now it's 49 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on nine o'clock and the BBC is next.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com.
1: Eggs are expensive, but chicken wings are getting cheaper, and Americans are expected to gobble up nearly one and a half billion wings this Super Bowl weekend.
21: It was a finger food. You watch the game, you are in. It's easy to, you know, do both at the same
1: time. You know, it's just good party food. A scouting report on affordable Super Bowl snacks on All Things Considered from NPR News.
18: Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9
13: WBUR.
28: I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.